Now, uh, I have an announcement here. Is that right? Teachers. Could you please announce to your class that there is a change in procedure in the Kids for Truth pickup? Kids for Truth pickup. Parents and grandparents need to pick up their children, need to pick their children up in the child's classroom. Child's classroom. We are no longer bringing the children down at 8:15. So they've got to go upstairs. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, Joel and Shelley are doing well. Uh, we, the ladies, had a tea, a Turkish tea last Saturday at our church, and they were hooked up to uh, Shelley and Betsy Ekman. And uh, Jennifer, Jenny um, Thompson, Thomas Thompson uh, via Skype, and it was a shower for Shelley. Oh, and our church, like your church, I mean, we kill people with kindness. <laughs> I mean, absolutely kill them with kindness. She's gonna be, she's gonna be writing thank you notes <laughs> for the next month, at least. But they had Turkish teas, and they had Turkish. I wasn't there. <laughs> and they had a great time. And uh, it was just a neat, uh, neat way of a church showing Christ's love. So I, want, I, I thought you might like to tune into that. Now, I think we're on uh, page 26. Eddie, where are we? I know where I am. I'm standing up here. Where are you? Twenty-six. Twenty-six. All right. The theme of First John is the test of life, the test of eternal. I better drink this. Or it's going to fall off. The test of eternal life. And John breaks down the tests into three sections. So the first test of eternal life is the test of fellowship. And we define fellowship as sharing in the life of God, sharing in eternal life. The word fellowship means to share in something. And in 1 John it means sharing in the life of God, sharing in eternal life. All right, so the first of three tests of eternal life is the test of fellowship, fellowship with God. And as he does in all these tests, uh, John starts off with the, we call the, uh, so, uh, the test of fellowship. The test of fellowship. The test of fellowship. And he begins by uh, addressing the uh, the uh, conduct, we call this the ethical test. And you might recall there was uh, walking in the light. There was confessing sin. Can you read this? <coughs> confessing sin, uh, obeying Christ. 
loving believers. And lastly here, separating from the world. All right, and that's where we are. We're the fifth of John's five ethical tests, tests in terms of conduct. If you, if you pass the test of fellowship, this is what your conduct will look like. You'll be walking in the light. You'll be confessing sin. You'll be endeavoring to obey Christ. You'll be loving other believers. And you'll be separating yourself from the world. And that's where we are. That's where we are. So let's begin at small b, the demand for separation. Is that where you are? Chapter 2, verses 15 through 20, uh, 17. And I'm going to read now. 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. All right, I say, uh, having expressed his confidence in the salvation of his readers. Remember last week we looked at that. Little children, you have overcome. Fathers, you have been victorious. Uh, young, youngers, young people, young men. Generic for recent converts and all that. All right, so having expressed his confidence in the salvation of the readers, John presents this test in the form of a prohibition. He then clarifies and supports the prohibition through three declarations that follow. Now, the prohibition is designed to warn us, his readers, about that which is opposed to eternal life. The declarations that follow are intended to reinforce the danger of what is prohibited and to encourage the readers to heed the warning. So John warns his readers that they are not to love the world or the things in the world. Now, I've uh, uh, maybe added a word or two in my notes to what you have in front of you, so just be aware of that. The world which the readers were not to love refers to the present world system that is under Satan's authority and dominated by sin, all as a consequence of the fall. So the world that we are not to love refers to the present world system. It is the world of unbelievers who are under Satan's sway. He is the prince of the power of the air. It is a world system that is characterized by rebellion and uh, sin. Rebellion against God and sin. All right? And all as a consequence of the fall. As such, this present world system is opposed to God and to the things of God. 
Thus, John's prohibition is that his readers are not to place their affections, love, not to place their affections on this present fallen world, and specifically on the things this fallen world esteems and pursues. So to love not the world simply means that my affections are not to be placed on the things of this world. Well, things that are opposed to God and in conflict with God's word. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but we're supposed to have our affections on things above. Paul tells us that in Colossians. So the question is, where is our where are our affections? What do we love most? Well, John's going to continue to discuss this. To clarify and support his prohibition, John makes three declarations about this present world system. The first declaration is in the form of a hypothetical statement. John declares that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, to love this world means to place one's affections on this world and all that this world represents. John's contrast here is clear and absolute. Those who habitually, present tense, love the world demonstrate by this that they do not love God. God is not the true object of their highest affections. This is in contrast to those who have experienced the mercy and grace of God in salvation. The second declaration identifies the specific characteristics of this world the readers are to avoid. John declares that all that is characteristic of this world, and then he spells it out, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. It isn't sourced in the Father. It's not derived from the Father, but it is of the world. The lust of the flesh refers to any evil desire involving materialism or immorality that is prompted by the sin that resides within us. So let me read that again. The lust of the flesh, lust flesh, refers to any evil desire, lust, involving material things or immorality that is prompted by flesh, that is by the sin that resides within us. I explain here, you don't have it in your notes, but here's my notes. John uses flesh here metaphorically to refer to our fallen human nature in which a sinful inclination or disposition resides. It is true that at salvation, the penalty of sin is removed. We are forgiven perfectly, completely, eternally. And it is also true that in salvation, the power of sin is broken. We're no longer slaves to sin. You and I have a freedom now not to sin, but to serve God. Prior to salvation, you and I were servants of sin. We were enslaved to sin. But at conversion, <coughs> that bondage is broken, and now you and I are free to serve God. But at salvation, the presence of sin is not removed. That will not be removed until we receive our resurrected bodies. That's called glorification. 
in which sin will no longer dwell. And I'm looking at you, and you're looking at me, and I'm telling you right now, I long for that time. I long for that time. I hate my sin. I love my Savior. I hate my sin. Well, there's a sin that lies within me. In my human nature, that uh, endeavors to provoke me, tempt me, prompt me to sinful responses. And I've got to constantly resist it. All right? So he talks about the lust of the flesh. Well, that's the evil desires that are prompted by that sin that lies within me, prompting me to focus on things that are material or things that are immoral. That's my understanding of the lust of the flesh. That sin within me is endeavoring to prompt me, provoke me, tempt me, get me to pursue a materialism or immorality. All right? Let's go on. (laughs) The lust of the eyes refers to sinful pleasures or desires, lust, derived from what the eyes can see. In particular, it refers to whatever this fallen world esteems or desires that is in conflict with God and His Word. And that can be seen with the eyes. All right? Do I look on uh, somebody's house or somebody's cars or the clothes somebody wears? Do I look at uh, their bank account or their position? And I envy them. And that becomes an object of my desire or immorality. Do I look upon someone of the opposite sex with an evil desire. Oh, that's the lust of the eyes. It's what you can see and you desire that's in this world and that is in conflict with God and His Word. I'll come back to that. The pride of life refers to the false pride that comes from having what this sinful world esteems as valuable or desirable. Is my car nicer than my neighbor's? And I kind of throw out my chest and say, well, I'm better. <laughs> I've got a better car. I've got a nicer house. i got a smarter dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's the pride of life, the false pride that uh, boasts in having the things of this present world system. So John goes on, the reason the readers were not to engage in such activity, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, is that all of these things do not come from God, but are the product and longing of this fallen world system. So, well, I'm going to, let's finish up and I'm going to make some application. The third reason John gives in support of the prohibition, do not love the world, involves the transitory nature of the present world system and the permanence of God's will and those who do it. 
John declares that this present world and its lust, its evil desires, are all passing away. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. While God's judgment of the world is yet future. Nevertheless, there is a sense in which the world is already showing the signs of its own demise. Nothing that is esteemed or prized in this fallen world is of lasting value, but in fact perishes with our using it or with the passing of time. The implication from this is that those who are devoted to the things of this fallen world will themselves not continue. They will be judged and excluded from the world that is coming, that is Christ's kingdom. Conversely, those who are characterized, present tense, by doing the will of God through obeying his word are assured of eternal life both now and in the age to come. All right, let me just reflect on this. I'll tell you what, this passage, there's a sense in which I am grateful for this passage. I am grateful for this passage. I cannot read it without being convicted. Where are my affections? You know, what do I pursue in life? Where, where, you know, what, where is my time devoted? Where, 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 what do I love? What do I really love? All right, John is saying we we cannot love the things of this fallen world system, and that sin within us is yearning for those things. And then, just let me focus here a bit. You know, everything I have, everything I have, that I count valuable, God has given to me. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of life, who doesn't change. James. How, how can I take pride and that which my Father has given me. If I'm going to boast, I ought to boast in the one who gives it, not the recipient. I've got to remind myself the things of this world are passing. They are not of true, lasting value. Only my relationship with God and the salvation He has given me by His grace is of true, lasting value that is truly precious. I've got to remind myself of that. And then one more thing here, and I hope you don't mind my saying this, but I, I'm in vocational ministry, full-time vocational ministry. And, uh, oh, unfortunately, too often, I hear about somebody who's in vocational ministry who has been disqualified because of immorality. You know, I look at my students and, I, and they're looking at me and I said, you know, I hope that never happens to you and I don't ever want that to happen to me. So I tell my students, you know, with my computer, I never go to a site 
unless somebody else I know has said that's a good site. So if I'm getting something on the computer that says, hey, check this out, if somebody hasn't already told me, okay, I've been to that site and it's a good site, I, I don't go there. I just delete it. Because I don't want to expose myself to temptation because I'm a sinner saved by grace. My strength is in the Lord. I have none of my own. <laughs> I also say to my students, you know, I've toyed with the idea of putting a cr uh, on top of my TV. Uh, I will not let my eyes look upon that which is evil. Now, I haven't done that, but I think about that. And here's what I would say. I think that's just sound advice for the believer. And I'm, I may be relating to the guys here more than the gals. I, I just don't know. I, I'm a guy. <laughs> All right. You know, the moment that I find myself engaged in the lust of the mind or the lust of the eyes, or in the boastful pride of life, the moment I sense that I'm doing that, I stop. And I, 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 I confess that to the Lord. I ask for His cleansing, and then I ask for His protecting me. Say, I say, Lord, be my shield, be my protector from my own sin, <laughs> and from Satan's strategies. The reason I say that, as soon as you... You and I sense that we're engaged in what John has just told us don't be engaged in. As soon as I recognize that, it's important for us to stop right then. Because sin is addictive. And the longer you toy with it, the more difficult it is to stop. All right? So, uh, this is a, a passage that the Lord has used in my life wonderfully to convict me to warn me, to equip me. I don't want to stand before the Lord as one who has been disqualified because of failing to heed John's warning. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I pray for those who have, and I ask the Lord to remind daily that danger is ever lurking, ever lurking, ever lurking. I've got to have my guard up. It is that serious. It is that prevalent. It is that important. Don't love the things you want. All of that's passing away. Those who do the will of God, whose lives are characterized by endeavoring to be faithful to the Lord and His Word, will have life in the kingdom and in the eternal state. All right, any thoughts about that section? Hope, hope you don't mind me a little application. It's not, it's not wrong to have nice things, especially if you use them for the Lord. I mean, it's not, you don't have to live like the Amish people and not have electricity or nice houses. There is a false humility that takes pride in not having the things of this world. And the Bible says that God does give some believers uh, resources 
that uh, he's entrusted to them and they are to use them for his glory in serving him. You know, I, I go to Africa, I go to India, I go to the Pacific Rim. I haven't been to South America yet. And uh, from, from every perspective, all of us here are quite well off. <laughs> We're quite well off. And uh, it's because I believe God has entrusted us with the resources of this world. And we are to be generous in their using in the, in the use of them in serving the Lord and helping others, believers, and so forth, and in showing that the Lord, these resources are not going to get their grip on my heart. I want, I want my love and affection always and every day to be on the Lord and the things above. Good point. Anyone else? Like Lynn. I know when... Um Brenda was saying something earlier, she was saying about there's things in life you love, and I like the Ecclesiastes, I don't have an idea of what I do, but it's NLT, um, New Living Translation, it says, so I decided there's nothing better than enjoy food and drink and divine satisfaction and work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God, but who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? So it's, basically, there are a lot of things that God gives us to enjoy, but make sure that it's in the right environment. Exactly. In fact, later on, the Solomon, the author, will say, and as you're enjoying these things, remember, you will give an account to God. So, enjoy them properly. Thank you, Terry. Anyone else? I, I just, I don't know how to bring this up, but you kind of touched on it. In this culture in America, there are so many believers that the stuff that Yeah. Putting our eyes on. Right. And maybe I should say this, and forgive me for saying this if it's not uh, as appropriate as I think it is. <laughs> Gals, help your husband. Yeah. No, not in their face with your fist, but, honey, <laughs> can I help you? you know, can I help you? I love you. Can I help you? What, what can I do to help? And, guys, guard that relationship. Guard it with your spouse. Uh, every day, guard it. And uh, make that just all that God wants it to be. And uh, God will use that. Appreciate that. Let's, uh, let's go on then. I'm on page 28. Is that where you all are? Capital B, Fellowship Tested? Okay. That tells me I have expanded my notes a bit. <laughs> All right. Now, we've, we've looked at the, uh, the doctrinal test of fellowship with God, sharing in the life of God. Now we're going to look at the, the ethical. We looked at the ethical, how we should live. All right. Now we're going to look at the, the doctrinal, what we must believe if we have fellowship with God. All right? That's what capital B. Fellowship tested on doctrinal grounds. In the previous verses, John has set forth the ethical test for fellowship with God and eternal life. In these verses, he advances the doctrinal tests. John divides the passage into three sections. He begins by addressing the issue of perseverance, 
Next, he discusses a key Christological test, and he concludes by returning again to the issue of perseverance. All right? So we're talking about the test of fellowship, and now John is going to focus on, well, what you must believe in order to pass the test. He's going to start out with, you must persevere in the faith. That is, you must persevere in the truth of the gospel in the faith. You must uh, believe Jesus is the Christ. And he comes back to this one again. And you must persevere in that truth. That is, persevere believing that truth. All right, that's what he's going to do. Let's see what, how he unpacks it. Uh, number one, let's just skip down to number one. Fellowship demands perseverance, and my uh, subtitle is Persevering in the Faith. You might want to put that as a subtitle. Persevering in the Faith. Let's read these verses, 18 through 21. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained, i.e., persevered with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know and supply these truths. I have written to you because you do not know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. All right. John begins a section by warning his readers about false teachers or antichrist. So you should understand. We understand that antichrists plural are referring to the false teachers John is combating. In the, it is the last hour, John says, and just as they had heard, the readers had heard, that the Antichrist is coming. All right? Even so now, many Antichrists have appeared, providing evidence that it is the last hour. Similar to the phrases, last days and last time, the phrase last hour refers to the period of time between the first and second advents of Christ. This period is viewed as the last hour in that the Lord's return is imminent. What do I mean by that? That is, it could come at any moment. So John is using the word last hour in the sense of it is the last hour before the Lord returns. God's timetable has come to the last hour. And the Lord's return is imminent. It can come at any moment. That's what he means, the last hour. I go on. And there are signs already present that point to the nearness of his return. 
specifically, John says, the spirit of falsehood that will energize the future Antichrist, well, that spirit is already present and active in the Antichrists, or false teachers, that are now on the scene. John calls these Antichrists because they are fundamentally opposed to Christ and the Gospel. These false teachers left the congregation represented by the readers, John states. But that simply revealed that they were never truly a part of the fellowship of believers. In fact, had they truly been part of the fellowship of believers, they would, they would not have departed from the readers. The fact that they left is proof that they were never part of the fellowship to begin with. Here's what I add. These had made a profession of faith, but had failed to persevere in believing the gospel. What these lacked, and what the readers have, is the anointing or gift of God's Spirit dwelling within them. So the anointing refers to the Spirit and is indwelling the readers. In that John's readers have this anointing, they understand the truth, and they continue in the truth. In other words, those who have God's Spirit and eternal life persevere in the faith. Since the false teachers have left the faith, it is clear that they do not have God's Spirit and do not have eternal life. John concludes by saying that he is writing these things to his readers, not because they have failed to understand and embrace the truth, but because they have embraced it. As such, they know the truth and are able to recognize all that is in conflict with the truth. All right? So, the first doctrinal test is that the readers are persevering in the faith, but the false teachers have failed to do that, have withdrawn from the congregation because of the conflict in what they believe. All right, that brings us then to Fellowship Demands a True Christology. Here's my subtitle. You might want to add it. Believing the Truth About Christ. Believing the Truth About Christ. Let's read two verses, 22 and 23. Who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and, he, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. All right, <clears throat> 22 and 23. At the heart of the error confronting the readers was a heretical view of Jesus Christ a view that denied the incarnation and thus the deity of Jesus. John directly addresses this heresy. He begins by asking a rhetorical question to identify the false teachers. He says, who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The one who does this, John declares, is an antichrist. By denying this truth, he is in fact denying both the Father and the Son. Now, I, I've kind of expanded my notes here. Jesus is using the title Christ to refer to the divine nature or deity of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, because in verse 22, he says, to deny Jesus is the Christ is to deny Jesus is God's Son, the one who shares fully the nature of the Father. The false teachers had embraced a thoroughgoing dualism. Follow this now where the spirit world, which is good, 
and the material world, which is evil, can never be joined. Now, don't, don't let me put you to sleep by my saying this, okay? But we, we refer to this as a Neoplatonic dualism. <laughs> All right? It is a view that says, well, the spirit world, the immaterial world, is good, it's pure, it's true, it's lasting. The material world is evil, it is temporary, and it is bad. And according to this dualism, the two can never, never be joined. You can never have the spirit world intersecting the physical world. You just can't, according to this philosophy. All right? You just can't. That was Plato's understanding, and that, that influenced uh, the Mediterranean world following that period throughout the period of the New Testament. All right, go on. As such, they were denying that the human Jesus and the divine Christ were united in one person. In other words, they were den denying that Jesus was the Christ. Instead, they taught that the spirit of the divine Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and left him while on the cross just before Jesus died. Jesus declares that the one who teaches this is the liar. Notice that, the liar. That is the chief of liars, and that this lie attacks the very essence of the gospel. To deny the incarnation is to deny the validity of God's message of salvation. If Jesus were not the God-man, fully God and fully man, two natures united in one person, he could not be the Savior. Why is that? He must be truly human to die. <laughs> God cannot die. The God-man can die. Humanity is able to die. All right? He must be truly human to die, and in particular to die for humanity. After all, he is a, 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 the God-man, truly human, able to substitute for other humans in his death for our sins. And he must be fully God for his death to be of infinite value to atone for mankind's sin against an infinitely holy God. Since the Father is the one who authored the plan of salvation and the one who sent the Son, to deny this fundamental truth about the Son is to deny, in effect, the Father as well. Furthermore, John adds, whoever denies the Son does not have fellowship with the Father. In contrast, the one who confesses the Son has fellowship with both the Father and the Son. John notes that the implications of this issue are far-reaching. The one denying the truth about Jesus does not have fellowship with the Father. In other words, the one denying this does not enjoy a saving relationship with the Father. On the other hand, the one who continues present tense, to confess the Son, persevering in that truth. That is, he believes the truth about Jesus and continues to embrace it. This one has fellowship with both the Father and the Son. Uh, just a thought here, and I don't think I've done this before. We know that God cannot die. 
So, the author of Hebrews tells us, well, that was one of the key purposes of our Lord taking upon himself humanity so that as the God-man, he could die. John tells us he was also taking upon himself humanity so that we might see in Jesus what God is, who God is, what, what he's like. So, our Lord took upon himself humanity so that he could die in our place. Now, I sin, and I sin against an infinitely holy God. So let me ask you this question. What is the magnitude of my guilt and my debt when I sin against an infinitely holy God? What is the magnitude of my sin and my debt? What is the magnitude? It's infinite, right? Well, that debt can be paid in one of two ways. I, as a finite being, can, could spend eternity in hell. A finite being must spend an infinite time to satisfy the infinite merit, excuse me, the infinite offense against an infinite holy God. Does that make sense? Or the God-man could die in a moment because the value of his death, being the God-man, has infinite magnitude and can satisfy the infinite offense of God that my sin has created. Does that make sense? Those are the choices. Either we can put our trust in the death of Christ because of his being the God-man, his death provided an infinite merit, or we can suffer eternity as a finite being in hell pay for our sins, all right? So that's why the Lord became man and how he was able to accomplish in his death on Calvary's cross an infinite payment to satisfy the infinite demands of a thrice holy God. Verses 24 through 27. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, the word for abiding would be remains, continues, perseveres. You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is a promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as this, uh, uh, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, you abide in him. All right, let's unpack these verses. In the previous verses, John has denounced those who have defected from the faith. Here John turns again to address the importance and necessity of persevering in the faith as the mark of those who have fellowship with God and eternal life. So he started out with this, persevering in the faith. He went to this key Christological test, believing that Jesus is the Christ. Now he comes back to the issue of, we must persevere in this truth. All right? Persevere believing it. John exhorts his readers to let that which they have heard from the beginning abide in them. If a message they heard from the beginning abides or remains in them, John promises that they will continue to abide in the Son and the Father. To speak of the gospel as abiding, present tense in the readers, 
is another way of saying that the readers were to continue to believe the gospel. All right? The gospel abiding in them means they are abiding or continuing to believe the gospel. That is, they were to persevere in the faith. Those who persevere in the faith are assured that they will continue to abide in, that is, continue to have fellowship with both the Son and the Father. Furthermore, having fellowship with the Son and the Father is nothing less than having eternal life, that which God has promised in the Gospel. John declares that what he is writing in these verses was intended to warn them about those who were endeavoring to deceive them, a reference to the false teachers. John's purpose in writing these things was thus to protect the readers from those who were denying the truth of the gospel. In the face of this threat, John's readers could take comfort. The anointing, or gift of God's Spirit, given them by God at salvation, continues, present tense, to abide in them. As a consequence, John says, there is nothing the false teachers had to offer that the readers needed to be taught. That's my understanding. He says, you have no need to be taught. All right? You have no need for anyone to teach you, verse 27. He's referring to the false teachers. You don't have any need of them to teach you. <clears throat> On the contrary, God's Spirit continues to teach them, confirming them in the truth. Furthermore, the Spirit instructing them is Himself absolutely true and without falsehood. Thus, just as the Spirit continues to instruct them regarding the truth, John's readers were to continue to abide in that truth, even as Christ had instructed them. By abiding in the truth, the readers could, would continue to abide in Christ, that is, continue to abide in a saving relationship with Christ. John's point is not that persevering in the faith is a condition for fellowship, that is, for eternal life. John is not saying that. Perseverance is not a condition for salvation. Rather, John's point is, those who have been given eternal life through the gospel will persevere. That's a point I want to make again and again. Scriptures say all true believers will and therefore must persevere in the gospel, believing the gospel. That is not a condition for salvation. It's the necessary evidence. You understand the difference? It's not a condition, it's the evidence of. All right? So let's talk about perseverance here, and then we'll uh, pull the plug. Let's talk about perseverance. I've got some notes you don't have, so uh, let me just kind of sketch it here. Can you read that? Because I can't. That is why. All right. Perseverance in faith, perseverance in faithfulness. All right. I say believers are actually commanded to persevere in two related in two related ways or areas. The first way that we are commanded to persevere is in the faith. That is, in believing the gospel. John has just addressed that. All true believers will and therefore must persevere in the gospel as evidence their faith is genuine and as evidence that they are saved. Anyone who professes faith and fails to persevere in the gospel reveals by this that their faith was not true saving faith 
and that they were never saved to begin with. I think I used the illustration already in this class about that friend of mine in seminary. Did I re yep. use the illustration? And Ed, you were asking me a question similar to that. Yeah, I have a brother-in-law that uh, went to Free Will Baptist College and uh, he studied to be a preacher and ended up being, you know, pretty strong. To me, he was a strong Christian, but mm -hmm. and I just uh, off the deep end was divorced and uh, mm -hmm. the things I hear about him from the other side of the family just mm -hmm. make me wonder about him. Well, my understanding in light of the scriptures saying that true believers will persevere, that one who makes a profession of faith and fails to persevere, in effect turns their back on the gospel, denies the gospel, believes something that is in conflict with the gospel, that means that their faith was not true saving faith to begin with. Do we mention the three elements of saving faith? Intellectual, emotional, volitional, do we mention that? Okay. Alright, true saving faith, so biblical faith, saving faith, involves the intellect, it involves the emotion, and it involves the will or volition. In other words, for me to be saved, there are certain truths that I must believe to be true. That's the intellectual there should be a corresponding response in my emotion of joy. And the volition is where I put my trust, my confidence. I cast myself upon the Savior and Him alone. That's the volitional. Now I'm assuming the, the parable of the, of the uh, soils. Parable of the soils, you all recall that? Uh, good soil, but not so good soil. All right, three of those soils say that there was a response to the gospel, but there was not a persevering in the gospel. And there was a falling away from the gospel. Well, my understanding is that they didn't have true saving faith. And if you were to press me, well, what did they lack? I would probably say the volitional element. They were not really putting their trust, committing themselves, casting themselves upon Jesus and him alone. All right. That's my humble opinion for what that's worth. That and a half dollar get you a cup of coffee. What was the expected one? Emotional? Emotional. Yeah. Can you have, you have to have all three of those, or can you have... I think saving faith involves all three. You have to have all three. Yeah. Let me illustrate. Remember I said faith and repentance are two sides of one coin? Okay. So let's just put, put up here uh, repentance. Well, we're going to get to that. I've got some notes here. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's take uh, repentance. Strange spelling. <laughs> intellect. Well, it means I recognize I'm a sinner. That's the intellectual part. The emotional part, this is perhaps a bit more clear. I am grieved about my sin. And then the volitional part, I want to be, I want to turn from my sin. Now, notice my words. It's not that I turn from my sin, it's I want to turn. Only God can, by his saving power, grant me that desire. Do you understand that point? All right. So, 
Repentant faith involves the intellect, emotional, volition, will, the will. And uh, I would say that those who have made professions of faith and don't continue in that profession never had saving faith to begin with. All right? Okay, let's go on. Um, you want to see a passage that teaches that, by the way, that all believers will persevere? You want to see that? Okay, let's turn to Hebrews 3.14. Uh, Colossians 1, 22 and 23 is another passage. Colossians 1, 22 and 23. We all go there. I'm going to get through my notes here. The second way believers are commanded to persevere is in faithfulness to God and His Word. All right, now we're down here. Furthermore, persevering in faithfulness to God and His Word is expected to result in good works. We've discussed good works last week. All right? So persevering in faithfulness to God and His Word, that is supposed to look like you are, in persevering, producing good works. Yet even though all true believers will persevere in faithfulness, I'll say that again, even though all true believers will persevere in faithfulness to God and His Word, here's the, here's the other part, nevertheless, not all do so to the same level of success. Eddie, Eddie, Ed Martin may persevere in faithfulness to God beyond what I'm persevering in faithfulness. But the point I'm making is that all true believers will persevere in faithfulness to God and His Word at some level. At some level. Alright? Let me unpack that. By the way, as far as levels of success, Matthew 13, 18-23, Matthew 25, 14-30, levels of success, the parable of the talents. Okay. All right. 
I'm almost here, finished. John allows for the possibility that a true believer can get caught up in some sin, even to the point where God takes the believer's life. Well, that sounds like a bit of a conflict. I've just told you that all true believers persevere in faithfulness to God and His Word at some level. But now I'm saying that a true believer can get caught up in a specific sin and pursue it, stay in it, to the point where the Lord takes him home. Okay? Well, how do I reconcile that? That doesn't sound like perseverance, does it? In faithfulness. I go on. At the same time, true saving faith must produce at least some good works. Or it's not considered saving faith. James says, if someone says that he has faith, but does not have any works that flow from his faith, his salvation, can that faith save him? And the way that, it, that, the way that that is written in the original is the answer is no. It's very clear. When he asks the question, can that faith save him, James writes it in such a way that the answer is clearly no. So, James is saying, every true believer will produce some measure of good works in humble obedience to God and His Word. Oh, I'm almost finished. Time's up. As well, John says that true believers cannot have lives characterized by the habit and pattern of sin. So here's my point. Let's say I'm a true believer. I think I am. I have assurance that I am, but just for, for illustration. I'm a true believer. John says that my life must be characterized not by sin, but by faithfulness to God. Characterized. But in my life being characterized, there is a possibility that there is a single sin that I could get caught up in. That one sin doesn't characterize all of my life, but it does characterize that one particular area of my life. That's how I harmonize that. So my life must be characterized not by sin, but by obedience to God. But as my life may be characterized my entire life, there can be a sin that gets its grip on my, my heart. And I would persevere in that one sin to the point where the Lord says, you're coming home. That's how I harm myself. Hope that makes sense. Maybe not. Okay. Maybe. Sort of. I was going to ask. Um, Go ahead. Could it be any, any sin? Like, what are, are there, like... Sins that cannot be committed by believers? No. Um, like, could it be any sin? Like, are there examples that Scripture gives of what that might be? Or, I mean, I know a sin is a sin, but that grips are hurt. Yeah. Um, like well, it can be... Pride, greed, lust. It, 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 it can be as simple as not taking the Lord's Supper properly. First Corinthians 11.30 Because you are not taking the Lord's Supper properly, some of you are sick. And some of you have fallen asleep. And that's Paul's word for the believers who have died. Alright. So, so what John is saying then is that if we're persevering in the faith and persevering in faithfulness as a character of our lives, that we have confidence, that we have eternal life and great assurance. 
that we are a child of God. That's the point. I'm sorry I went over. I promise not to do that. Hopefully, everybody. <laughs>